So thank you all for coming to Cock Talk. He has trouble counting change with the with the with the hands thing. Wait, wait, stop. Sorry. Yes, but I don't yeah. think that Dana Carvey's movie um, coming out at that same time was really that big a problem for our country. I still don't know why you're making such a big deal about September 11th, 2001. I mean, I fucking hate you. Well, you know, they don't necessarily need to be anathema, but they are definitely on different ends of the spectrum. Oh boy, how? See, I have every, a genetic predisposition every, against redheads, so because yeah, because you are one, right? Yeah, combustion. Yeah, we've yeah. heard it before. Yep. The only time I change the setting so, is when so, I take the uh, okay. hair trimmer down to the nether regions. Like that's the only time. Other than that, it's all just a two. Well, ladies and gentlemen, I just want to about you all. I'm joking. I use V. After the four Gospels, what's the next book of the Bible? Acts. Okay. And after that, it's Romans, isn't it? I'm drunk. Um, yeah, Romans. Okay, yeah. Yes. Okay. And if you look at the 15th chapter of Romans, okay, uh, you will find that it actually mentions uh, the ability to arm yourself. That's why it's AR-15. Thank you. Checkmate atheists. And, and anytime there's action in the ring, Scott Hall is taking all the bumps because Kevin Nash kind of sucks as a worker. a geek history of time where we connect nerdery to the real world my name is ed Playlock. i'm a world history and english teacher here in northern california and um <laughs> this morning um as i was getting out of the shower uh as usually happens uh our our cat one of our two cats um climbed into the shower right behind me uh, because for whatever reason, despite the fact that they have a perfectly clean filtered water bowl, like a like a water fountain that is entirely their own, there is there is some reason that they uh, crave the experience of uh, licking the water up off the floor of the shower. And it does. I, I don't I don't get it. It makes no sense. But whatever. Um, and my son uh, was very, very forcefully uh, trying to scold the cat and get the cat out of the shower. And I don't remember if it was me or my wife. We said, dude, what's what's the problem? He says, I don't like them getting kitty DNA in the shower. For, for those who might need the reminder, my son is five. Um, and we, we had a back and forth about this. And... Uh, Come to find out, he 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 learned about DNA on a on a show on his iPad, uh, finding stuff out. Um, and uh, we had to explain to him that everything is made out of DNA, and you know, uh, everything living anyway has DNA. And uh, if he doesn't like cat DNA, we're going to have to get rid of the kitties because there's no getting around that. And you know, come to find out, it's no he doesn't he doesn't like having their hair on the in in the shower. Which okay, I can understand that, but you know, having having my son make a bold claim about you know I don't like there being cat DNA in the shower was was a bit uh, we we were a bit taken aback, so. 
So yeah, that's that's what we have going on. How about you? Well, I'm Damien Harmony. I am a Latin and U.S. history teacher at the high school level up here in Northern California. Uh, and uh, I've got a, a small twofer for you. Number one, a new role-playing game entered the chat today at home. Oh, um, yeah. One that I had ordered a while back and gotten like mini refunds because the price had come down, I guess. Okay. Showed up and um, my daughter immediately beelined to it. It's Avatar, uh, The Last Airbender. Okay. The right. role-playing system. Uh oh, it was okay. it was a Kickstarter thing that I'd missed. So now mm-hmm. I'm buying the you know retail copy. Yeah. Uh, which is a bummer because the dice on the Kickstarter one were amazing. But that notwithstanding, um, my daughter uh I just I put my kids down before we start recording. Yeah. And she took the book with her to bed, which is not uncommon. And instead of us playing D D tomorrow, uh she's going to run an avatar game for us. So she has spent the entire afternoon reading the Avatar book. And, uh, you know, she came to me just before bed and she's like, hey, I need these. Like she gave me a requisition form of like, I need these <laughs> character sheets to be downloaded by the, and okay. printed by the time we play. And I was like, all right, I'll do it again. All right. But yeah, uh, that's that's it's wild. It's cool. Um, we had actually come up with our own Avatar world and. Mm-hmm. And whatnot in 5e okay um, but this is better because it's you know yeah made, made... yeah it's a tailor-made system to exactly. match that universe so yeah, yeah. That, okay so i look forward to seeing how the mechanic works uh all right yeah. um i know nothing so i'm letting her teach me the whole thing tomorrow all so, right That'd uh the cool. other thing is yeah. i found something that i did not think would ever exist um and i did not think would uh, w- would ever happen ultimately. Mm-hmm. And that is, I found an action figure of my favorite superhero of all time. I am now the proud owner of a speedball action figure. Really? Uh-huh. So uh, I sent okay. that to, uh, to friend of the show, Dr. Gabriel Cruz, uh, who had been on the episode where mm-hmm. I, uh, episodes uh, where I talked about speedball and what mm-hmm. had happened to him. And, you know, nobody likes speedball the way that I and maybe my brother like speedball. Okay. Um, and and maybe uh, a former student of mine named LeBron uh, okay. really liked speedball. I think mostly because I liked him and he's like, yeah. he liked he liked that I liked it and okay. all the wisdom. Okay. Yeah. And so I texted uh, Dr. Cruz and I was like, I can't believe it's there. And he's, yeah, I can't believe it either. <laughs> damn it uh, but also he's happy yeah. for me so yeah, well yeah that's All good right. that's yeah. good but yeah so <laughs> <laughs> yeah uh that so. that masculine should just be like yeah i know yeah i don't <laughs> yeah. i don't get it either but yep. happy for you but yeah yeah the fuck? so yeah but it was cool it's cool yeah uh, they don't have a good enough for me nova uh character yes. oh yeah um there's there's the retro ones they have okay. good nova and firestar retro yeah uh i missed the boat on night thrasher uh it would have cost me 20 dollars had i picked it up at the bookstore mm-hmm. uh and then it disappeared and now they're like 80 bucks oh yeah so that's the way that goes yeah nope. but uh but right, yeah cool. so there you go cool. all right i too am happy for you yeah so I, I wonder if Speedball is a character that ultimately aged well. I think so because he's essentially a sillier, zany version 
a less competent version of uh, Spider-Man, and that seems okay. to you know do well. Yeah, yeah. So, All right. But speaking of based aging on well, based on that interpretation, that makes sense. Yeah, speaking yeah. of aging well. Uh, yeah, what about Paul Rudd? I mean, how the hell, <laughs> right? Packed uh, well, with the devil if anybody ever made one. Well, like, no, I think crap. what it is is he is secretly related uh, to Dick Clark. Uh, okay, yeah, that makes sense. Mm-hmm. That makes and sense. They have a, right. an ancestor in common, apparently. Okay, they, they are the ancestors. They are, yeah. I've I... never seen either of them together. Yeah, I've never seen them in the same place at the same time. Yeah, and now that Dick Clark is gone theoretically yeah. paul rudd's star is rising <laughs> as far as we know exactly yeah all right okay so that's what i think yeah. okay but, but anyway you you actually had something someplace you were going with that well yeah that i just i mentioned well. avatar last airbender but that reminded yeah. me of the movie avatar and i also okay. was talking about things aging well or not and yeah. it occurs to me that we've never done an episode where we talk about uh movies that mm-hmm. were phenomenal and whether or not they've aged well. Okay. And that's, you know, the kind of change over time thing that I like. Um, yeah. I tend to leave comedies and action films out of that because I genuinely think that um, the ones that age well out of those are the exception and not the rule. Because uh, okay. both genres are really so reliant on contemporaneous sensibilities yeah. uh, that they usually aren't going to age well. They're, they're not supposed okay. to age well. Um, so usually they'll get a pass from me, but at the same time, maybe don't show them to your kids and expect them to hit the same way as they did when you were a kid. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But do you have any, any movies that come to mind that are, that are like that? Well, you know, you say movies that were, that were amazing when they opened and, and have not, have not stood the test of time well. And of course the very first one that comes to my mind is a comedy. Uh, uh, but a couple of others do occur to me, and actually, mm-hmm. um, I'm, I'm going to start with one that is not the first one that that came to mind. Okay, and and it's actually kind of a twofer. Well, real quick, let's uh, yeah. give give the audience five seconds to silently bet on which oh, one okay. is a comedy that didn't age well that okay. you think Ed is going to tell us about. And okay, okay now that you've written it down and put it in your friend's pocket, uh, mm-hmm. when he says it, pull it out of the pocket, and then. You'll okay. win. Uh, you'll win uh, the door prize. So there you go. Okay. All right. So, all right. Tell me one that did not age well. Okay. Um. So so to start with, not the comedy. We'll we'll put a pin in that and and hold on to that for a while. Mm-hmm. So you know, keep that pocket buttoned. Yeah. Yeah. Um. I'm gonna start with, as I said, a twofer because mm. they're they're closely enough related to almost be the same movie. Um. And it's Holiday Inn and White Christmas. Oh. Okay. Um, Bing Crosby, um, nothing with him age as well. <laughs> sadly, his kids sadly. didn't age well with him. So no, no, yeah. no, indeed. Um, and so the thing is, of course, white Christmas is, is a sentimental classic for millions and millions of people. Oh yeah. Quite so. And, and so for a certain subset of the population, maybe not very many listeners of our show, mm-hmm. but, but for a certain subset of the population, the idea that white Christmas didn't age well is tantamount to heresy. Um, you know, because, you know, look at what it's all about, sure. you know, it's, it's, you know, gathering, gathering everybody together for the holidays and, 
you know, the whole plot line is, is based around, um, you know, them, them trying to do something to help out their beloved, you know, commander from the war who's fallen on hard times, Mm -hmm. you know, I mean, it's, it's there, there are some wonderful heartwarming, great things about this movie, but, um, (laughs) there's, there's one sequence that kind of, that kind of shoots it in the foot. Uh, in, in terms of, of aging well, and, uh, that is, uh, the, the minstrel show sequence Mm. now in white Christmas, Uh they don't actually do anything in blackface, right? But they do hearken back nostalgically to how wonderful the minstrel show used to be. Mm -hmm. And no bing bing i love you i really like i really do i am i am a huge bing crosby fan Mm -hmm. and no man that that why do you got to do that now the thing is here's the deal culture man i tell you yes (laughs) ruining art ruining yeah so sensitive ruining art yeah everybody yeah Yeah. well okay and it's interesting to bring that up Uh uh-huh here's the deal (laughs) Because uh, White Christmas was made in 52. I didn't okay. actually look the date up. But it but it was essentially during, if, if I remember correctly, it was during the Korean War. Yes, it was. Um, White Christmas, uh, not White Christmas, Holiday Inn mm-hmm. was made in the 40s. And Holiday Inn involves a full-blown blackface sequence. Ooh. There is a musical number in which Bing Crosby, Ooh. himself corked up, leads the cast. Just just real quick, corked yeah. up does not mean he stuck a cork up his ass. It means no. that he burnt a cork, and, and that was what they used to use, burnt yeah. cork, to smear around their faces. By that yes. time, there was actual makeup, but yeah. the idea was it was uh, it was like boot black or it was burnt yeah. cork. Um, yeah. And, yeah. Okay, yeah. carry on. So he and um, Fred Astaire. Oh boy! And well, no, I don't think Fred Astaire was was one of the performers in the sequence okay. because Fred Astaire was the other was the third leg of the of the romantic uh, triangle. But the female lead mm-hmm. um, and like all of the members of the backup band were wearing blackface in a in a number um, about uh, Abraham Abraham Lincoln. Because the conceit of the movie was that uh, Bing Crosby had tried to leave behind showbiz, but he couldn't quite get performing out of his blood. And so he's running an inn in Vermont, which uses all the same sets as White Christmas. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) Does David Bowie come by and they also do some blackface? Oh, no, that was that was that was way later. That was way later. Um, <laughs> although, although I wouldn't be surprised if parts of that set were also taken from, I was, from, I'm wondering this, yeah. like, dude, but, um, the, the conceit is that he runs this in, in Vermont, but he only has it open, uh, for holidays for holiday, essentially holiday weekends. Mm. And, and they do a themed show based on whatever the weekend was. And for whatever reason, one of the holidays in the film is Lincoln's birthday. Yeah. That's an opportunity, you know, alongside, yeah. Alongside Valentine's day, Easter, Christmas, like Valentine's day, Easter and Christmas, you're not going to have a need for blackface. 
Lincoln's birthday. You have an excuse to have everybody. And and what is yeah. disgusting to have to say, okay. but a true thing, was it was considered its own genre of art. And in fact, it was its own genre of art. There are very specific things. There's usually an interlocutor uh, mm-hmm. who's, uh, you know, basically translating the mutually incomprehensible dialects of each of the people. So we can all yeah. take the piss out of that. Yeah. And there's all kinds of like conventions there's... and tropes. Stock um, characters, yeah, it, with it's, specific stock names. It's it, hyper racist. Oh as yeah, a genre, but yeah. it is its own genre. So I could understand them wanting to wedge in that genre in the same way that you're like, okay, we did a jazz number, we did uh, a ballroom number, and now we need a waltz number. Like, yeah, I could like, just see them thinking through that and being like, yeah, oh, how long well, has it been since we've done blackface? Oh yeah, good how, idea, how long? Paul. Yeah, you we got to we got to do a minstrelsy number. Yeah, right. You know, and and as you're talking about the the characteristics of uh, minstrelsy as yes. a as a genre, what strikes me is it is a very much, very much American and very mm-hmm. much the dark side of the American psyche response to Commedia dell'arte. Oh, tell me there more. are there. Well, uh, Commedia dell'arte is one of the one of the, the Italian, early right, yeah. Uh, obviously, and um, Commedia dell'arte was was a genre of performance uh, that was very uh, improvisational mm-hmm. and relied very heavily on on stock characters. There would be, right. you know, a, a young woman and a young man who were in love. There would be the the elderly father of the young girl who would get in the way. There would be the fool the character, gent, you know, stuff. Like yeah, that. yeah, you know, yeah. There would there would be all these all these various kind of stock characters. Mm-hmm. Um, and the, the humor would, uh, oftentimes veer into the crude because this was a, this was a popular form of art rather than an upper class form of art. Right. Um, but everything, you know, if, if you understood the conventions of the genre, you could start the way that a group of players were doing a, a scene Mm -hmm. and you'd pretty much be able to figure out how it was going to end. Right, but the fun was in which bits they were going to throw in and leave out, and how that was all going to work. Exactly. And so, so in a way, this is American Commedia dell'arte. This is this is American Commedia dell'arte, yeah. and that says some very bad things mm-hmm. about our collective uh, uh, dominant culture psyche. So yeah. So that was 1950 something, 52. You said. So um, Holiday Inn was in the 40s. Oh, okay, okay. White Christmas, White Christmas was White Christmas was I want to say 51 or 52. Okay. And the thing is, in the intervening less than a decade, mm-hmm. it had already become well, okay, look, we're not we're not going to do blackface because that this is just not done anymore. We're not we're not, you know, that's that's not cool. We can't we can't do that anymore. That's day class A. Right. So when you when you make your joke about oh yeah cancel culture can't do anything, like that's not a new thing and it's not actually cancel culture. It's us as a society going, Growing. you know what? Maybe let's be less shitty. Yeah. You know, maybe yeah. just a little. Can we try? <laughs> so so the thing is, um, it's a good thing my wife doesn't listen to this uh, podcast because she in is fairness, one of those. Neither do you. Yeah, well, yeah, and I knew that was coming. And yes, yep. in fairness, yeah. um, uh, because 
because white Christmas is a staple in our house every Christmas season. And she absolutely loves the film and, and she, it, it's, it's a, it's a film that she will put on in the background. And there are, there are a number of the numbers in it that she will very clearly be paying very close attention to. And then there's other stuff that's just kind of background noise while she's decorating the house or whatever. And, I have tried to have the conversation with her about, you know, I, mm-hmm. I, I miss the minstrel shows and, and it, it has not, it has not yet been worth the uh, uh, conflict for, you know, to, to have that. I just, I leave the room <laughs> sure. when that, when that scene comes on and the rest of the movie, I love the rest of the movie with my whole yeah. heart. But like, that, like at that moment, you're like, can I get you something to drink? Let me make yeah. a complicated drink. Yeah. Tell me, yeah. I'm going to go, I'm going to go <laughs> in the other room and, and find some laundry to fold for yeah six minutes. Cause yeah. So, so yeah. And, and holiday, I've basically told her, I, I'm, you're not, no, we're not watching holiday in, in this house because that's, no, I, I can't right, even right. You know, like no. The 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 wonderfully bubbly comedic bits between Crosby and uh Esther are great, mm-hmm. but they're not worth that. So just no. So uh, because I taught blackface um <laughs> as a subject, not yeah. as a yeah, genre. Yeah. Um, because I taught about Jim Crow, I taught the kids the origin of Jim Crow and we discussed blackface in my class, uh, not too long ago. Um, I, I've done some deep diving into blackface as a genre, uh, and, and I kind of want to get an episode on here about blackface, but I would rather have an expert do the work because I'm sure there's a lot that I'm missing. I'm not a theater person. I'm not a dramaturge. Uh, neither am I a history of drama expert. Neither am I black. Um, and I think we'd need to have two of those three things uh, to discuss it <laughs> yeah. um, on here. So I'm going to yeah. start trying to hunt that down. But do you know the most recent um, blackface performance in mainstream media? Oh, there was an episode of Mad Men where one of the partners in the ad uh, mm-hmm. ad company... Mm-hmm. Uh, got up in front of a bunch of people, and it was supposed to be in like 1965, 1960 66. Something. Yeah, yeah. He's saying he my got old up, Kentucky home, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and everybody, everybody was kind of politely, kind of kind of golf clapping because he was he was the owner, you know, one of the owners of the firm. But it was very clear everybody was appalled, and his much younger fiance, if mm-hmm. I'm remembering the plot line right, just like fucking walked out. Sure. So I want to say that was it. I wish. Oh shit! Really? I wish. Uh, Billy Crystal did it as recently as 2012 uh, for the Oscars. What? Yep. 2012. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh my god. Yeah. Um, and there were <sighs> a bunch of a bunch of Jimmy Fallon and Jimmy Kimmel stuff that went through about 2005 uh, where they would do things impersonating various people. Fred Armisen <clears throat> imitated Barack Obama and he donned blackface. Um, and it wasn't it, okay. So there's, 
the problem is is that it, it's it's similar to the word the, to the phrase sexual assault. Sexual assault can mean anything from uh, pinching someone's bottom to holding them down and forcibly raping them. Yeah. Um. And and plenty of things on both sides and in between that. Right. Yeah. Blackface used to be that specific genre with the Chicken George character and the Jim Crow character and yeah. things like that. And the very, very dark black, like the color of our microphones, black, shiny, with the lips drawn on and stuff like that. Yeah. Cartoonish. It also has come to encompass, and I think rightly so, it has come to encompass white actors uh, or non-black actors, because this is also a thing in the Latine community uh, during uh, certain parades. Um, but mm-hmm. uh, non-black actors using coloration to make themselves look black also Mm -hmm. counts as blackface now i would say that there is one that is far worse but i'm speaking as a white dude uh and so i'm parsing things out but i would say that uh doing the stereotypical this that and the other is different uh than uh donning bronzer to make yourself look like a man who is of mixed heritage uh that being said Mm -hmm. Hire a black actor. Like, there's no reason to do bronzer. Fred Armisen has plenty of other good shit he can do. And yes, his voice work is phenomenal. But it's okay to hire another black actor, too. Yeah. Um, Yeah. So just kind of like what... um, Oh, God, what's his name? Keenan... The guy in... in... No, no, no. no. Keenan Michael Key? No, no, that's Keegan Michael Key. Keegan, um, okay, is Keenan the guy from SNL, the one who uh, he was in Good Burger? Oh, okay, he yeah. stopped. He said, "I'm going to stop doing uh, drag because they would always have him in in drag." Yeah, um, Keenan Thompson, I think. Thank you, Thompson. Jesus. Yeah. Um, he said, "I'm going to stop doing that." He said that like five or six years ago. He's like, "Start if you want more black female characters, hire black female comics," and mm. like he straight up put his foot down. Yeah. Right? But yes, uh, the the most recent was. Um, Billy Crystal in 2012. Actually, there was an episode of um, Orange is the New Black where uh, a character uh, black-faced as a Halloween costume. Um, no, no, no. I'm sorry. Um, it wasn't an episode. It was uh, a singer, Julianne Huff. Um, Huff, Hugh, H-O-U-G-H. Huff. Huff. Okay. Huff. Um, she, uh, she dressed up as the character Crazy Eyes. From Orange is the New Black. I think I remember hearing about that. And all I could think was, really? Yeah. And that was right around the time that there was a lot of yeah. cosplay about Michonne of white char- white people who really liked the character Michonne. And they're like, I just really like the character. And yeah. was like, stop it. Yeah. Knock it Sorry. off. Sorry. Bummer. You know? Yeah. It's just. And and rightly so, quite honestly, given given yeah. what, what the other gradations have done. Yeah. But yeah, the given last me, one yeah. on purpose performance um on major media was mm-hmm. Billy Crystal in 2012 that I was able to find. Um so yeah. Jesus. Yeah. Okay. So good times. Good yeah. Good yeah. Uh so <laughs> yeah I, I could see why that didn't age well. Yeah. Um, so uh, a friend of mine who is a comedian uh who we still haven't gotten on here uh, about his book um he uh, uh Keith Little Jensen he has a joke about like, uh, oh, this cancel culture is ruining. People are too sensitive as he takes the cold cream to his face to wipe off the blackface for the very last time in the 1960s. Um, he might need to update yeah. that since Billy Crystal did it. 
And Billy Crystal yeah. had a history of doing that, by the way. Like, yeah, oh yeah, no, uh, on, on a number of occasions. Yeah, to the point where yeah. I actually grew up thinking that he was black. I thought he was just extremely light skinned. Okay. Um, and you know, I saw him in Cool Runnings. That might have been my first exposure to him. Uh, cool oh, Runnings okay. With yeah. um, all right. Yeah. Oh God, a uh, guy who's a really good dancer. Uh, it'll come to me. Yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, I saw him in Cool Runnings, and I was like. I, I again, I I thought Billy Crystal was black for the longest time. Uh, I was disabused of that notion. Um, yeah, yeah. So fun stuff. Um, no, it wasn't running. It wasn't cool runnings. I'm sorry. Uh, it was running scared. That's what. It yeah. Was. Um. Yeah. Yeah. It was Gregory um, Hines and Running Scared. Yeah. That's because I was like, cool runnings, John Candy, but he's also not black. Um. Yeah. But yeah, no, it yeah. was uh, Running Scared. Yeah, no, uh, Running Scared. Yeah. And I thought that both characters were black, just one was lighter skinned than the other. Um, okay, it was wrong, so yeah, anyway. Um, cool. Well, I've got one that is actually okay, uh, kind of a twofer as well. Um, oh, yeah, uh, phenomenal movies, all three of these phenomenal movies, mm-hmm. like, like captured yeah. the imagination, the production value was amazing. Um, and okay. they're all basically the same film. Um, and that film is white meat, white people make the best indigenous people. Um, well, you might know it as dances with okay. wolves or last samurai yeah. or avatar. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, <laughs> I, you, you gave, you gave the, the plot line yeah. title and I was like, Oh, dances with wolves. And yeah. then, Oh yeah. And <laughs> last samurai and, yeah. and yeah. And let's just make the indigenous people, Giant and blue and yes, Avatar yeah. James yeah which I'd t- I I'd called Dances with Thunder Smurfs when I'd seen it yeah um all right so let's look at Dances with Wolves first um yeah. it was a game changer as far as westerns go um yeah as as our uh colleague that I've already mentioned uh colleague our friend of the show uh, Gabriel Cruz has said history is a series of problematic steps forward um this absolutely is that uh in 1985 only 87 actors of indigenous heritage were in the screen actors guild total in 1993 the number was 436 all right wow this movie is very much a part of why that happened wes studi uh Mm -hmm. the cherokee actor who's been in over 100 films uh he played one of the pawnee in the film yeah okay um, he said that Dances with Wolves broke things open in a lot of ways. And according to him, quote, it set a new standard. It set a standard followed by many films afterward that dared to look into what made Indians tick. No more wooden Indians. And I think that's pretty accurate. I mean, you mm-hmm. had internal lives. You had people that were not just um, a, a cardboard cutout menace, the zombies in mm-hmm. the background kind of thing. Yeah. A third of the movie actually was spoken in Lakota with subtitles. Yeah. Um, and the subtitles were yellow, uh, which I really appreciated because yellow subtitles are easy to read regardless of the scenery. So they're going through the snow. Mm-hmm. Shit's yellow. It doesn't matter. Um, whereas if you have white subtitles, it's hard to understand and read. You go across a computer console and the subtitles are white and you miss what some of the words are like. This is yeah. one of those things like we did it once, proved that it could be done and then decided never to do it again. Yeah. So <laughs> Yeah. Now, there are some problems with the Lakota spoken, but still, the movie had a significant portion of screen time with just indigenous people talking to indigenous people and not about the white people. 
Yeah. Um, and Dances with Wolves absolutely approached doing a better job of centering indigenous peoples in a Western, which is something that until that point had not really been done. Uh, and they did it in the most responsible way that they knew how. So problematic steps forward. They hired cultural consultants and they made a genuine effort at understanding Lakota culture. Now, this doesn't mean that it didn't piss people off. For instance, people of the Comanche tribe uh, were uh, bothered by this because it was originally a story about Comanche. Um, but the and the Pawnee were uh, pissed off about this because they're like, hey, we weren't the oppressors. The Sioux fucked with us. Um <laughs> <laughs> yeah can we can we can we maybe maybe analyze which side we're picking in this particular non-white yeah. people fight like but uh but the reason for the shift actually from comanche to lakota was essentially geographic uh new mexico didn't have enough buffalo to film the herds uh whereas uh and and they couldn't find that many people to teach them comanche language uh, Lakota was a lot easier to find. Um, and okay. since uh, and and North Dakota has or South Dakota has a shit ton of buffalo most mm -hmm. in the world. Um, Lakota language teachers were easier to find. And since they're both groups that made extensive use of horses, it was an easy thing to port the story over. OK, it's now about them instead, you know. OK, so if I was going to do an immigrant story, for instance, about a, a Catholic group and mm -hmm. uh, I didn't. I didn't have enough sunscreen. Um, then instead of it being about the Irish, <laughs> you can have it be about the Italians, Italians the yeah, Portuguese. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, so, um, but, but yeah. speaking as, as a, as a white bread Catholic who is not yes. a member of either one of those two groups, uh, but, but rubs elbows with them in the pew. Sure. Um, <laughs> they're, 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 Similarly, actually, to to porting from Comanche to Lakota to Sioux, mm -hmm. um, there's there's yes, the 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 overarching scrim can remain the same, but sure. there's a lot of shit you're gonna have like underneath. Well, obviously, that, yeah, yeah, scrambling. like yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, and speaking of the language, uh, yeah. a woman named is woman named Doris Leadercharge uh, was assisted by Albert Whitehat, and she taught the actors how to speak the lines in Lakota. However, this also is not without some funny controversy itself. It turns out, according to Russell Means, a Lakota activist, that there's gender dialects in Lakota. And all the men spoke with a woman's dialect. Uh, and so he got a kick out of this. I, it would be the equivalent to um, speaking, like being a really strong warrior, speaking with a, a very effeminate lisp. Right? Yeah. And, and it's interesting that that, uh, brings up to me something that was actually a plot point mm -hmm. in uh, Shogun, which mm -hmm. which is not which is another example of you know white people make the best non-white people. Sure. Um, I don't I don't think it was nearly I don't think nearly as much effort was made to be as as respectful of Japanese culture as as Dances with Wolves made. Right. But it's actually a plot line in the novel and in in the miniseries. Oh. Uh, that John Blackthorne uh, starts his education in Japanese being taught by a woman. And similarly, mm -hmm. there is a dialectical difference. Right. And, and you know, the, the samurai warlords he's dealing with are intensely put off at first. Yeah. Yeah. You know, until, until it gets fixed. Sure. <laughs> Somebody says, sure. no, no. all right, look, no, you need to say it this way. Right. You know? Yeah. 
So the reason for this was uh, that the men's dialect was actually harder to teach the actors. So they just left out those gendered lessons. Um, anyway, all of this is garnished huh. to the biggest issue. Uh, despite these steps forward. Now, remember, Westerns usually had the indigenous people as your generalized background menace to the white folks or or comical inserts in a John Wayne movie like uh, Chief Iron Shirt. Um, or maybe they were filling in the magic Negro trope for the main character, right? Yeah. Um, this definitely centered them in a white actor's stories. Uh, but at the end of the day, the story does still center on Kevin Costner and Mary McDonnell, both of whom are white folks who turn native because it's a better way of life. And while this could be seen as complementary to indigenous peoples, it still ends up being a fetishization of them. And at the mm -hmm. end of it all, it pushes the narrative that white people do indeed make the best indigenous people. It also still sets the tone with having our first exposure to indigenous people as being brutal and then vanishing. As we, the first that we see of the Pawnee is a memory that Mary McDonald's character has of when she was a child. And the Pawnee attack her, her family. Uh, and then you have Dunbar, Costner's character, say that he'd like to see the frontier before it disappears. Apparently, Kevin Costner's character is kind of a proto-Frederick Jackson Turner. Uh, mm, additionally, mm -hmm. uh, so there's this idea that they're disappearing, right? And there's this idea yeah. that they're savages and that they're disappearing. So either way, it's still, you know, like very much the white lens. Uh, and additionally, uh, the Lakota are depicted as being unable to defend themselves from white settlement. Um, and they're only able to save themselves from extinction because of Dunbar's help. And at the end of it all, he sacrifices himself in their name so that the Lakota can survive. So when I say white savior stuff, I mean complete with the whole martyr complex. Mm -hmm. So that's that's that version of the movie. The next version okay. of the movie happens in Japan at roughly the same time, interestingly. Um, yeah. <laughs> Like it's ten years later in terms yeah. of filming, but it's roughly <laughs> the same time. Um, Twelve years later, Tom Cruise plays a drunkard, out of hope army officer who ends up living with a community of people foreign to him in their own place and becomes one of the best of them that ever lived. Um, and interestingly, you had Wes Studi talking about you know this movie that I've been a part of has really kicked open some doors and has done some good stuff. Mm -hmm. Ken Watanabe said basically the same thing. He stated, "quote." I just thought we had the opportunity to depict Japan in a way that we were never able to before. So we thought we were making something special. Mm -hmm. so I, I just, I just want to cut in. It's Ken Watanabe. Sorry, Watanabe. That's yeah. literally a spelling error on my part. Okay. All right. Just because yeah, I'm a huge Watanabe. fan. Yeah. I'm, yeah, I'm yeah, a huge, absolutely. huge, huge fan. And so, I would yeah. like to get people's names right. So yeah. Um, and again, it's a very similar vibe. Uh, the They're depicting a much more historically accurate society. Um, uh, that said, they get plenty of it wrong. The movie highlights all the samurai who resisted and ultimately died in the attempt at an actual battle that did take place, ignoring broadly that the samurai mostly did adapt to an urban lifestyle. And as a class, they became very important in the modernizing Meiji era. Uh, and there was actually a French soldier who aided in this fight, but not like this. Uh, by the time of the Satsuma Rebellion, um, he was long gone. Uh, his name mm -hmm. was Jules Brunet, and he helped a separatist rebellion in Hokkaido, which ended in time for him to go back home and fight in the Franco-Prussian War in 1870. Mm -hmm. 
Anyway, back to the movie. Uh, the American soldier yeah. who knows how to use a saber from a horse and a gun is there to instruct the government on how to fight the modern way. Cool. That's actually somewhat historically accurate. Uh, the Meiji era opened up Japan and got experts from all over the world to help figure shit out uh, yes. and modernize Japan. But then he gets captured in a battle by the noble Japanese samurai clan who take him back to their home because one of them had a vision about him. Um, he dries out from being a huge drunkard and he spends a long time being boorish and shitty amongst their polite, tidy community. Eventually, hmm. he learns their language. He falls in love with the woman whose husband he killed in combat and he learns the ways of the samurai. And after like six months of training, he's able to best the swordsmanship trainer in three moves. Okay. White um, people really do make the best indigenous people. Uh, okay. So yeah. a couple of things. Sure. First, uh, just because it was bugging me, uh -huh. uh, the Satsuma Rebellion specifically uh, took place in 1877. Right. And Dances with Wolves is roughly contemporaneous, 18, 1863-64. Um, uh, as, as far as we can figure out... Uh, Dances with Wolves, uh, he... Ends he's up wounded in the war. in the Civil War, but and then years winds up getting by. sent west. Right? Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, I don't know how many years. Okay. Yeah. So not, yeah, not it twelve. Is, I will give you that. Yeah, but, it is. It is. Yeah. But it is. But it is still roughly contemporaneous. Yeah. And the American Civil War, in both mm -hmm. cases, plays an interesting framing function. Yeah, it burns out both guys. Yeah, it wounds yeah. them both deeply. Like, yeah, it wounds them both. And spiritually. Right. And what we have involved is a fetishization of non-white culture as a spiritual thing. Yes. So the so the role of magical non-white person in both of these films gets played by an entire civilization. Right. Um and and the other thing, um, just as a as a sword nerd, mm. um <laughs> it's it's offensive. Like, like it's part of the reason I have, I have never actually been able to watch the movie. Okay. Um, even though there's, there's so many things like I'm a huge Ken Watanabe fan. Sure. And, and yeah. And, and there, there's so many things in that movie that are, that are awesome. Um, and it's, and it's about the Satsuma rebellion and mm -hmm. like for, for, for the historian oranges. in me. Yeah. yeah yeah uh rising up uh, against the shogunate mm -hmm. uh and and you know squirting juice in the eyes of opposing exactly soldiers really just grinding it in there yeah so... <laughs> it's got appeal it really does oh uh, my love day, of the sir. orange stems from the top I don't yeah know nice yeah. nice um i i'm amazed you don't spend more time navel gazing about it um it's you know what they they featured it in a few pulp novels. Actually. Okay, good, yeah. good. Uh, but there there's so many things in that movie that like most uh -huh. of my friends look at when I say yeah I've never watched it. Most of my friends look at me you it's you a samurai movie. It's a samurai. How the how the hell? And I'm like no no no. I I found out before I even tried to sit down to watch the film. I found out that no no Tom Cruise goes and, and learns you know how to handle a samurai sword in six months well enough to defeat somebody who's been doing it all literally all their life who's been teaching uh, the the clan yeah who's yeah. yeah who who is the master swordsman of his household yeah no sorry um can't do like 
there are a great many things I am willing to suspend disbelief on. Sure. That simply is not one of them. Oh, and every it, martial artist I knew just... was like, what the fuck? Like, <laughs> like, I will on. say this. I and, and I said this at the time. At least he has a history of martial capabilities with a blade. Yes. So you could... It's stretched. It's really but it's, thinly stretched. But it's but it's a one-handed blade. I agree. I agree. Like there's so all... many different things. Yes. Yes. <sighs> yeah. Um yeah. Uh the the like military saber style fighting yeah in the 1800s was an entirely different beast. Really? Then, then ritualized, ritualized combat in armor. Okay. Well, okay. Still. Hold on. You're saying those are different. Well, number. Hold on. I'm, there are a couple of things you've said there that uh-huh. are themselves Orientalist assumptions okay. that that showed up that showed up in the film and okay. are bullshit. Okay. Um. The the view that we have in the West of samurai combat being ritualized uh-huh. is uh, fetishization. Okay. Based on the fact that in in the literature, in mm-hmm. the sagas that the Japanese that that the warrior class wrote about themselves, mm-hmm. it always it always was ritualized. But then you think of think of La Chanson de Roland, think of the jousting stories or the or the fighting stories out of the legends of King Arthur. Right. Those are pretty. Those have the same things happening in a fairly ritualized order too. Sure. Also, this is the way. That, yeah, and this is the way that warriors fetishize themselves. This is yeah, the way they yeah. talk about combat, you know. And and so, um, European Western historians mm-hmm. and anthropologists and people studying these things looked at that literature uncritically and came to the conclusion that no, no, every time samurai went into battle, there was always this announcement of who they always announced who they were. They gotcha. always approached one another and they always started with the spear and they always moved from the spear to the long sword. They always moved from the long sword to the short sword and then right. to wrestling with the dagger, at which point one of them won. And the thing is in the heat of battle, no, that's that. No, that was the ideal they strove for. Like that sure, was, that sure. was how they wanted to do it. And in a feudal society, you are going to announce yourself because you want your liege lord to see what you're doing, so you can get properly rewarded later. Mm-hmm. But but it wasn't it wasn't like they had you know taiko drummers on the side of the battlefield going you know bung 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 bung, and then right. stopping at a dramatic moment when they two swing at each other. Like it's not using words like ritualized again is is leads to fetishization. Like it 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 okay. you have to be very careful. Sure. When you talk about that and, and then the idea that they were, you know, standing still facing each other and doing these things. I is... didn't mean literally standing still. I meant okay. not riding by on horses. Okay. All right. On, on foot. foot rather yeah. than. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. All right. But you're right. You got me on. The so ritual. anyway. Absolutely. Yeah. So, well, anyway, so uh, sorry. After, it's a, after defeating, it's a, it's a button for me. After but defeating yeah. the master, um, you know, in three moves after six mm. months of training, um, he then goes on, and the whole time he's been talking to Ken Wana, uh, Watanabe's character, um, and Tom Cruise uh, advises the heck out of him and instructs uh, Watanabe's son in how to do dope shit and be a better samurai, um, which is weird 
that this outsider who just learned it is gonna teach the the warlord's son yeah. um and hmm. then he joins him in battle and they're so close and there's there's a lot more to the plot too but um ultimately they're so close to winning in the battle of satsuma uh according to this movie uh but for the fact that imperial reinforcements reinforcements show up and damn the luck right with all their guns um in fact he's the one who ends up helping watanabe's character uh commit seppuku seppuku uh at the end of the battle uh that he helps him fight in and tom cruise's character understood their culture so well and was so honored that he got to do this for him uh once again definitely put a lot of Japanese actors on the radar, right? Watanabe yeah. was nominated for an Academy Award in making him the fourth person of Japanese heritage to be honored in that way. Mm. Um, but also the lesson of loyalty, courage, resilience of both Tom Cruise and Ken Watanabe so humbled the Meiji Emperor that he ends up rejecting the tentacles of American arms manufacture. Uh, if it weren't for Cruise and Watanabe's uh, man crush on each other, Things would have been less secure for Japan. Um, that's the movie. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, which it, it is kind of funny that like the movie is highlighting like, yeah, the, the military industrial complex bad idea. You know, even even back then. Mm -hmm. Um, which brings me to Avatar: Dances with Thunder Smurfs. Um, <laughs> so. <laughs> Uh, also known as Fern Gully with heavy ordnance. Um, yeah. Can't you like... feel it, pain? Um, <laughs> without Tone Loke. Uh, yeah. But with Michelle Rodriguez dying in it. So, like, yeah. You, actually, I don't know if she dies in it, but uh, it, it, it's funny. It, it's, it's, this movie is such an interesting movie um, because it set the record for box office until mm -hmm. um, I want to say. Endgame came out. Um, Avengers Endgame. Yeah, I think it might you're have right. been, or yeah. it might have been the Last Jedi. One of the two, or the Force Awakens, rather. But I it think set, it was Endgame. Yeah, it set the record until Endgame specifically stayed in the theaters long enough to to outstrip it. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. And it is a thoroughly and it's a gorgeous movie. I mean, it's visually stunning. It oh. set a new standard, special effects wise. And it is also a thoroughly forgettable movie that has left zero fucking mark other than the receipt uh, on most people's minds. Yeah. It's weird. So yeah. Sam Worthington plays a paraplegic soldier. So now that's three soldiers who are in significant ways handicapped. Dunbar had almost lost his leg. Algren was suffering from night terrors and PTSD and medicating that with alcohol. Uh, and Sully is paraplegic. Mm-hmm. Um, anyway, when his brother dies, uh, the other two also tr suffered tremendous personal loss as well through their, uh, military brotherhood. Um, Sully is the, Jake Sully is the only one with the genetic code similar enough to become a Navi avatar. The Navi are the indigenous people who are like nine feet tall, um, or taller. He comes out to a frontier world where the indigenous people are living in total harmony with nature but where Earth corporations are mining for something called unobtainium uh, and the need to move these indigenous peoples off their land uh, is is very much a front and center issue. And of course, the military I, is just there to help. Yeah, I, I love the fact, I mm -hmm. absolutely love the fact that they actually just went ahead and called it unobtainium. 
Oh, is that a, a Greek word or something? <laughs> no, um, it's a it's it's the trope. Oh, it's, they named the trope after it, then, didn't they? It's the name. It is the name of a trope. Uh, yeah, no, the trope has no, to have trope. been named after this, right? Mm -mm. No, no, wow, no. Then that's two because I was I I watched all of the GI Joe cartoons, all mm -hmm. of them. Yeah, all of them. And yeah. in one episode, they have something that they're hunting called the MacGuffin device. See, I'm like y'all are see, lazy. That's, that's well, or your that's, dog that's, One of the two. It's it's. it's I think it's both. I, uh, I genuinely think. Um, so I, unobtainium. I, yeah. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. well, so the military is there to help the corporation, which is just really disturbing. Um, well, you know, they're they're there because it's a death world. I mean, ostensibly, it's a yeah. Death I mean, world. humans can't you, breathe yeah. the air there. They have to have yeah. uh, canisters attached to them and masks on and stuff. What's interesting also is that Scott, not Scott, Stephen Lang, mm -hmm. uh, the guy who played Ike Clanton, actually, yeah. uh, Stephen Lang is in it. He is kind of the the guy in charge of the military there, and he is deeply scarred physically. Like all oh, the yeah. people who do bad shit are physically scarred. So yeah, uh, also that trope. Um, so at first, Sully doesn't really endear himself very well to the native peoples, um, but he does have that fighting spirit. And eventually the daughter of the chief pairs with him. And then he learns the way of the Navi while trying to balance that with his duties to the military. Mm -hmm. And eventually the two come two two goals come to impossible loggerhead and he chooses sides. And wouldn't you know it? He's there to help the Navi. And without his help, the Navi would have been slaughtered. And he also ends up riding the biggest Toruk there ever is that only five prior Navi have tamed. Mm -hmm. And he's only been a Navi for like eight weeks. Uh, and then he teaches them how to yeah. slowly resist the army. Yeah. Eventually. Um, yeah. Yeah. Go ahead. The, 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 the recurring theme of mm -hmm. um, white boy uh, getting, getting, pulled into or, or assimilating into a non-white culture yes. uh, by way of uh, sexual contact with a member of that group. Yes. Is there's, there's a really, you know, it's, it's again, it's like the pattern on the wallpaper. I, I hadn't realized <laughs> yeah. that that was, that's part of the trope. Yep. I'm like, Really? Here's another trope That's for you. Pretty gross. Zoe Saldana. Yeah. Apparently, in order to be in a movie that is the the earth shattering record breaker, has to be painted a different yeah. color. <laughs> like it, it wasn't Star Trek that broke any records, yeah. and she was her normal skin color for that. But she yeah. was blue in this one, and she was green as Gamora in Endgame. Yeah. So. Which is a real interesting. I, really, I don't. I don't. Really, I don't. I don't. I don't like hearing that. Like no. that's. Oh hey, afflicted. Especially when we just talked about blackface, right? Yeah. So now you're yeah. taking a black person, and, and you have to make her a different color. There's a weird thing that happens there. Wow. Yeah, and if you look at the rest you know, of the Guardians of the Galaxy, yeah. by the way, uh, Groot is Vin Diesel, also mm. black. Yeah. Um and yeah. uh, Drax is Dave Batista, Batista. who is Filipino. Filipino, yeah. Um, yeah, yeah, and, and uh, Mantis is I forget her name, but she is also Asian. Yeah. Uh, uh, yeah. 
I also forget the actress who plays um, Nebula, but she is Hispanic. Um, the actress. Am who I plays am her. I forgetting yeah. who ne- Nebula? Nebula is? The cyborg, Blue. right? Yeah, blue cyborg gal. Um, yeah, she's she's Scottish. Really? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, she okay. was on her. She 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 got her start. Start. She got she got noticed. I and, thought she was of Hispanic origin. Got big. I could be no, wrong. I could no. be wrong. Okay. Karen uh, Bradley Gillen. Cooper does does what's her name? Karen, Karen Gillan. Oh, that's right. That's right. Okay. Yeah. Amy Pond on Doctor Who. Oh, okay. So I'm off by yeah. one there. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So, but anyway, uh, yeah. No. Otherwise, spot yeah. on. Yes. Yeah. Uh, eventually, uh, the Navi win. Uh, yeah. Thanks to Jake Sully's help, uh, they <laughs> chase off the military. Um, now I'm okay with him teaching them like resistance technique. Cause again, yeah. it makes some sense to have someone from the prior culture saying, this is how my culture is going to think. Here's how you can sidestep it. Yeah. I'm yeah, cool yeah. with that, but all their success is because they turned to him for help. And of course you had the angry young man who was like, that's not going to happen. Um, uh, and who eventually is like, okay. I am wind in his hair. We are friends. You know, it's that. Yeah. Yeah. That fucking thing. Um, yeah. So they then begin to heal their society after they chase off the military and the corporation and everybody else. Um, and, and Jake Sully is accepted as a fairly highly honored member of the group. Um, and without him, the Navi would have been made to move off their land, but since they won, he chooses to be forever with the Navi, Mm -hmm. which again, I mean, again, given the options, it makes perfect yeah. sense. Good writing yeah. on their part to take us there, but it is tropey as fuck. Oh, um, yeah. All three of these movies share a tremendously similar story. Uh, yeah. The white soldier makes the best native of the, the culture that he's now inserted into. And every time he reminds them of what must be done, uh, I'm sorry, not what must be done, but what it means to be who they are, uh, in a way, it kind of galvanizes their ability to survive and resist the onslaught of military might. So mm, if the mm. white guy hadn't joined them and reminded them by embodying the the crystallized version, the what the Romans would have called the Aquila, you know, of their yeah. culture, um, yeah. if he hadn't been the Aquila fair for them, then yeah. they would have been wiped out by the by the uh, military. And, yeah, yeah. But what is a, a? I don't know what it is, but each one of these movies also has an incredibly rich visual epic uh, in its approach. Each one of them is just incredible. Um, And all three of these movies are gorgeous movies, Mm. which is really interesting to tie that to, you know, white people make the best natives. Yeah. And, and there's, there's a couple of, couple of things that occur to me as you're, as you're talking about that. Mm -hmm. Uh, The first one is, there is this um there's this tendency within sci-fi fandom within mm-hmm. a within a subset of sci-fi fandom specifically mm-hmm. anytime there is a female character who is really good at a lot of shit mm-hmm. like you know she shows up and she is you know, an incredible, she's an incredibly talented astro navigator and uh tactician. And, you know, she, she knows enough about, uh, you know, Starfleet weapon systems to be able to come up with, you know, fancy tricks on the fly. Right. 
Or, you know, she shows up and she picks up a lightsaber and she's a natural with a lightsaber and she has this immense connection with the force in, the instantaneously. One was, first one was Ensign Rowe, right? Uh, yeah. Okay, good. <laughs> and, uh, you know, or she shows up and picks up a lightsaber and, and has this, you know, natural talent for it, you know. Finn, right. It, well, yeah, him too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, but yeah, Ray. Yeah. But Ray. Anytime it's a female character who shows up and is is the hero, mm-hmm. um, there's this accusation of, oh, it's such a Mary Sue, <laughs> yeah. which when I get around to talking about fanfic. Oh, I, that, I look that's, forward to that. that that's where that comes from. Yeah. And, and, and it was actually originally an accusation made by uh, female writers of fanfic at one another. Hmm. But that's a that but has been latched onto by you know and made asshole by. asshole misogynists yeah um you know but then you know oh hey we have you know a union union cavalry soldier in two cases who shows up and is a better native than the natives are wherever they are and then we have you know injured marine who does the exact same thing on an alien planet it's like oh yeah badass man mm-hmm. like mm-hmm. no. No, they're all Marty stews. They're the biggest fucking Marty stews you can imagine. <laughs> but there's no there's no backlash when it's a dude. So, yeah. you know, baked baked into this hideous fucking trope is mm-hmm. is that as well. Yeah, and all three of the women teach these white men how to be better indigenous people. Yeah. If it is not for their ministrations, then these white <laughs> men would, ma- would have a much <laughs> uh, would have a much uh, harder road to. Yeah. Be- it would take them probably a full year instead of six months. Instead of six months, yeah, it'd take them at least double the time. Yeah, yeah. But like literally, it's and it's their their romantic relationship that is the bridge for that too. So you're absolutely right. Uh, good, yeah. Good call and out. I missed that. Yeah, yeah. And and also mentioning the romantic relationship being a thing this this was not my other thought originally but mm-hmm. that twigged something during the european well western uh imperialist domination of china when when you know china had been broken up into influence zones mm-hmm. it was a common thing uh certainly amongst european circles less so with americans because of our puritan heritage but when uh, men from Europe mm-hmm. went to China, they would learn uh, one of the ways that they would learn Chinese was by taking a mistress and they referred to them as their pillow dictionaries. Oh, wow. So there's a real world shittiness tied to yeah, there this is. fictional shittiness. Well, art, art <laughs> imitates life. So yes. Yeah. Um, Oh well, that's uncomfortable. Yeah, kind of. Got a sucks, movie that didn't it? age well. Yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, but then the, the other thing about train going. yeah, but, but yeah. the other the other thing about these three movies, yes, that I find interesting, is in all three cases, mm-hmm. the guy who ends up being a better native than the natives is a soldier. Yes, a broken soldier. A broken, specifically a broken soldier. Yeah, yeah necess- ne- necessarily a broken soldier. So yeah. To and I'm become wondering... a better native, you have mm-hmm. to be a substandard white. Yeah, you have to be an emotional or, or a physical cripple or both. Yeah. Wow, that's fucked shitty. <laughs> Super fucked up. 
but but I find it interesting that it's soldiers. Yes. Like it's it's not, you know, um booksellers or booksellers or or you know, aimless aimless, you know, yeah. upper class, upper class twit of the year. Right. You know, it's it's not anything, it's specifically soldiers. And I wonder if that's because the writers are trying to find somebody that we will immediately find we will immediately think that there are uh admirable character traits. I think also though, you you have uh, it's it's an easy write because mm. uh give me another profession besides teaching uh that so yeah. cripples somebody emotionally or physically. Mm. Uh so that's yeah. easy to explain their injury. Uh yeah. two, give me another profession besides teaching where you also have the shittiest people in the world right next door to him uh on the same regimental line. Um so you can okay. have yeah. like this all of really, that. Yeah. Yeah. I yeah, there that, is that a helps. also there there's is... a frontierism to all of this. And who shows up in the frontiers? Oh yeah. Like yeah, you got missionaries, you got merchants, and you got military. Yeah. So yeah. No, I see it. Yeah. I see right, it. What you got? Um, well, I'm not I'm not gonna go to the comedy yet. Oh, okay. I'm not gonna go to the comedy yet. I'm going Everybody to go just check your pocket real quick. Check check the note sure. you put down. Okay. Um, I'm gonna go to a classic, I wanna say fifties. I didn't I didn't actually look the movie up very very much before jotting it down in my notes um either 50s early 60s uh romance and a an absolute classic uh that has been referenced any number of times uh notably in a in a pop song uh that i'm a particular fan of hmm. um and the film is breakfast at tiffany's oh, i was gonna say something like it hot no okay number one that's a comedy good point number two that's that's earlier. Um, there's there's been more time for that okay. one to go to okay. go wrong. Yeah, yeah. Um, no, Breakfast at Tiffany's. Oh man, what about it? Well, um, it is. Did you, did you see what I did there? Yeah. I said, what about yeah. Breakfast what, what about at Tiffany's? Breakfast at Tiffany's? She yeah. said, "I think I remember the film." And anyway, um, I thought it was I remembered the bill because the next, no. as I recall, I I paid. And we no. both kind of liked. It. Oh wow! Okay, I I gotta we go said, look at the both lyrics. kind of yeah. We both sort of liked it, and I said, okay. "Well, that's anyway." Yeah. Um, it's a really sad so... song when you're newly divorced, by the way, because you start sobbing in the car. You know. Oh, yeah. I also said, "What about?" <laughs> yeah, so... All right. So, breakfast at Tiffany's. Uh, <laughs> the, yeah. No, ben, the, the Audrey. I don't think I was newly divorced, but anyway, yeah. um, Audrey Hepburn one. Right? Yeah, Audrey Hepburn okay. in in her like defining iconic. Yes. Big role. And number one, mm -hmm. um, the plot line is about the, the sensitive writer boy uh, who's the gigolo who winds up rescuing the girl he's in love with from oh. being a uh, sugar baby or oh. sure, you know. Sure, sure. So, you know, there is. There's kind of this, uh, this, this, you know, he, he saves himself by saving her, but there's not a whole lot of, like, it's not like he really needed to be saved based on the right. way the film, like, like the film doesn't really emphasize him. You know, he, he, he does have a moment of, you know, turning around to his, you know, uh, sugar mama and saying, you know, no, you know what? I don't, I don't need you. I can be a writer on my own. Right. 
you know, and then he goes and he goes to, you know, rescue uh, Audrey Hepburn. By the way, romantic lead played by a very young. No, no, the male romantic lead. Oh, uh, played by a very young. The guy who played um, Don Knotts. (laughs) I can't even be mad. No, George Papard. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. Wow. Oh, that's right. Because she teaches him how to make uh, Spanish custard. And he's just yeah. like, I love it when love a flan, it. When comes, a flan together. comes together. Yeah. Fuck you. No, it's because um, he did so, that so anyway, there's those two older women. Um, and he said, I love it when the grands come together. Oh. Okay. So, so there's <laughs> anywhere there's the, there's the innate you know, of its time sexism. Oh yeah. Involved in, in, in the, in, in the romantic plot line. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the, but the really, the really egregious part, the, the part that's just like literally this, the, f- the part that you're talking about, is this where the guy is like, come on, I took you to dinner. Don't I get to come inside now? Like they have oh, no, that conversation. Oh no, that's there. That's oh, there. Oh, right. But that's right, not, right. That's not yeah. no no no. Yeah, literally like, the first time I watched this the movie, fact that that's not the terrible part. Yeah, is yeah. really something. Yeah, yeah, no, no. The first time I saw this movie, uh huh, was with my first wife, who okay. who was just like, no, no, you you got to see this, you got to see this. This is a yeah. classic. Oh my god, I can't believe you haven't seen this. All right, okay, fine. And you kept no, waiting no. for Mickey Rooney to show up. You're yes. like, where is he? Where yes. is he? Yeah, he's and then be great in this. Yeah, and then Mickey Rooney shows up, and holy shit. He's in yellow face playing the worst. I mean, I mean, perverted, the most egregious, horrible uh, Japanese stereotype character Mm -hmm. that I have ever seen on film. Yeah. And I mean, like the the Japanese officer characters in World War Two movies. I was educated in your country at UCLA. Is less offensive, quite so. Yeah, is less offensive. Oh, yeah. than Mickey Rooney, with with a pair of Coke bottle lens glasses. Yes, with with his with his mouth all screwed up and buck toothed. Yeah, and, he's got buck teeth prosthesis. Oh my! Just holy shit! Like, yeah. I was I in and I was probably twenty three or 24 when I saw the movie the first time. So, so this was 20 plus years ago. And, Mm -hmm. and then it was enough for me to go, I don't know if I can keep watching this movie. Like (laughs) this is just bad. Um, so yeah, but you know, there are so many other things about it that are, that are amazing. And Audrey Hepburn, of course, is just luminous on the screen. Sure. George Papard is his usual, like, how are you this charming self right throughout the entire film? Yeah. Um, it's really clear um that that most everybody involved was having an awful lot of fun. Yep. Which always helps. You know, and and I mean, there are there are any number of reasons why this movie is iconic and is important within film. Mm-hmm. But but it did Mickey, not age well. Mickey fucking A, dude. Why? Like, oh my God, man, why? 
Oh, wait, 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 wait. Not just him, but whoever wrote the script, whoever oh, did yeah. the directing, whoever did the yeah. casting. Like, no, you're right. No, yeah. Everybody, everybody's yeah. complicit. You're in right. Shit. You're, yeah. No, you're right. I know. Don't, don't lay I that know. at the very small feet of Mickey Rooney. Ooh. So. Hey. Sorry. Sorry. Short guy here. What the <laughs> hell? I'll have so. you know, just because we're short doesn't mean our feet are small, man. Come on. That's true. My daughter's feet are right. enormous. Jesus. Oh, yeah. She's like the letter <laughs> <Yeah>. L. Okay. <laughs> All right. But, all right. So Red that's that's mine. That's mine. All the right. next one. Well, uh you you've stayed in uh the baby boomer generation's era. Um I am going to bounce back to our era, Gen X era. Oh shit. Um, and you know what we haven't done yet in this particular show? What? We have not done one of our two hallmarks of wrestling of mentioning wrestling oh. or Ronald Reagan. Oh. So I'm going to mention Ronald Reagan. Okay. Yeah. Bedtime for Bonzo? Oh. The love song to capitalism under Reagan and libertarian ideology. Okay. It is a pro-Reagan universe in that universe. Um, Yeah. And interestingly, that's not the part that I'm going to touch in this particular episode. I think think Ghostbusters deserves... I, it's I think own I, discussion. Oh yeah. Oh, it does. I yeah. I think I know. I think I know what we're what we're going to be going into detail about here. Okay. But okay. okay, I'm I'm so, mentally yeah writing it yeah. down. All okay. right, get it down. What do you got? So they did such a good job with uh, with that part that it actually still holds up. Um, yeah. In terms of like, wow, that's relatively consistent. Um, at least it tells us like, oh, here's the hope and the ideology. Of yeah. course, it relies the hope and the ideology relies on being ready for an apocalypse that will happen <laughs> like if the ghost didn't start busting out okay then all of okay. that yeah then then you did need the apa okay um, yeah but uh so i'm gonna ignore their disdain for regulations and academia yeah. and public services uh yeah but here's what doesn't hold up is is pete vankman's dogged insistence that dana wanted him to uh, wanted him despite her not wanting him and the ham-fisted damseling of Dana Barrett, Sigourney Weaver. Yep, I'm being pointed yep. out. That's the thing yep. you chose. Yeah, because yeah, I, I actually, in, in in my own notes, preparing for this episode, I one one of the films I, I put down was Ghostbusters. Oh, my whole and my whole comment was Venkman is just gross. Yeah, yeah. Like, <laughs> yeah. Well, sorry to steal your thunder here, but no, no, no. Go take it. Yeah, when take he it. first meets Dana Barrett, he is immediately smitten. All right, cool. Yeah. Um, he uses his job as a way of hitting on her. Not cool. Um, and she's come to them seeking help, and she's in a vulnerable state. And he's like, "Yeah, this is my time to shine." Uh, and she <laughs> notices this, and she reposts deftly, multiple oh, yeah. times. And we can see it in her reactions to his advances. Quick little looks. Sigourney Weaver is a fucking brilliant actor. Oh. She's um, a genius. Yeah, she's the best. She's part a genius of of dances with thundersmurfs. Yeah, uh-huh. <laughs> that's what I was going to say. Is interestingly, you've you've now brought up two films <laughs> that are Sigourney Weaver. Whereas you've done you know. two films where white people put on other people's makeup. Yeah, well, it's, yeah, there yeah. you go. Yeah. So anyway, he takes uh he takes Miss Barrett back to her apartment to check her out. Beat. Then she looks at him incredulous, and he says, "I'll go check out Miss Barrett's apartment." Okay. Um. Like it's that kind of shit. Uh, and it's that yeah. little look that she gives. She knows, she absolutely knows, but also she's kind of at their whim. Yeah. And she kind of has to just accept this creepiness because he's the alpha of this group of nerds. Uh, he goes back to her apartment 
rather insistently, where he haphazardly looks around, but mostly uses it as a chance to flirt with her. Um, he looks in the kitchen cur cursorily, and he sees the eggs on the counter, which in this day and age, that's that's awful. Um, but nothing really seems out of the ordinary. Remember the eggs popped out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and fried on the on the countertop. Talk about like really cool, like what are they? Oh, practical, practical effects. effects. Yeah, it was so amazing. Cool. Um and uh he's he's obviously totally out of his depth, and he's acting more like a game show host than a scientist. Mm -hmm. Um, and she's annoyed with him, and he and then he switches topics. Uh, you know, and she's like, you know, you you spent all this time. You know, uh, would you look in the kitchen? I'll go look in the kitchen. He looks and, oh, my God, look at all the junk food. You, God damn it, that wasn't here. This wasn't mm. here. And I heard a voice. He's like, I believe you. And then they walk out and, you know, she's like, oh, great. That makes me feel so much better. And he's like, and then he starts, like, interrogating her like any nice guy would. Nice guy in finger quotes. Mm -hmm. And then he stops and goes, I've got it. She's like, no, I'll prove myself to you. She's like, no, 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 no. And she tells him repeatedly that it's not necessary. And then he continues to beg her for a date, pledging to solve her problems. Oh, I'll solve your little problem, Missy, um, in order to, to impress her. And she she literally puts her hand on him to keep him away. And he mm -hmm. continues to advance. And then she says, uh, and then, you know, because, you know, and I'll solve your little problem, Missy. And you know what you'll say? Pete Vankman is a guy who can get things done. As he's saying this, she's guiding him out the door. Mm -hmm. I wonder what makes him tick. And she says, I wonder. I wonder if he'd be interested in knowing what makes me tick. Right. And she's like absolutely doing the mm -hmm. I mean, the, the the emotion work that women have to do for shit like this. I bet you're going to be thinking about me after I'm gone. I bet I am. And right before she can even lock the door, like he leans back, he opens it back up and leans in and goes, no kiss. And then she like face palms yeah. him. And then oh, yeah. So, you know, it's the 1980s, so that's cute and charming. But, dude, this is some invasive-ass shit right here. Mm -hmm. He's he's there as a contractor to do an initial assessment on a job, mm -hmm. and he spends the whole time in her living space making her feel uncomfortable. And the thing is, the movie plays this as charming, despite her refusing his multiple annoyances. Um, and then this all breaks her down. Eventually the Ghostbusters have a string of successes. And after this, with them being in the news and her laughing at them and their escapades while chopping vegetables in that same kitchen, um, in fairness, you only get one kitchen. So yeah, you're going to have to do the work in it. Yeah. You're going to have to be doing yeah. that. Venkman meets her outside of her work. Uh, no phone call. No, come down to the office. We've got, no, he, he goes to her work, which again, creepy yeah um he flirts with her boundaries there, and she again reposts magnificently and he talks about the conductor being a stiff you know who's the sniff the stiff as the guy's putting afrin up his nose and she reposts yeah. his rather adolescent attack against a man that she was talking about uh and she said do you have some information for me please and she's as annoyed as shit by this point and he of course then takes the information that he's got and tries to leverage it for her, for a date with her because you know just asking her hasn't worked so and yeah. he never really asks her <clears throat> either and she tells him no why don't you tell me now because he's like well i'd like to tell you over dinner why don't you tell me now and he relents and tells barrett about zool whom he has discovered is an associate with uh, an ancient sumerian god of destruction gozer and of course he pretends not to be able to read the word hittites 
which forces her to come into his proximity to read it. It's like, well, what's that word? Hittite. Hittites. Uh, but that notwithstanding, Vagman tells her that he'll go over it in more detail over dinner. And finally, she agrees to a date after he breaks down all of her defenses. Mm-hmm. After that, the movie damsels her pretty quickly. And the rest of the movie is him trying to rescue her. And he successfully does so. And they share a kiss as the uh, credits are appearing. But yeah. this movie is a fantastic movie. The visual effects are amazing. The The practical effects are terrific. Um, it is. It holds together so well, but for this enormous gaping asshole of a wound in it. Mm-hmm. So. And and notably, mm-hmm. not only um, does the does the trope of well, you know, just keep hitting on her until she says yes. Right. Not only is that there, but but his coworkers, his coworkers are annoyed with him about it but none of them ever have an ethical qualm to bring up with him about it right like he does n- this all the time I yeah mean, he starts the, the show he starts yes. the movie doing this with <clears throat> yeah Jennifer. W- yeah in in yeah. their in their initial role as academics right he's he's actively torturing a male student yeah as part of his attempts to get in the pants of a female Student. student right who's i mean let's be generous and say she's 20 yeah i was just gonna say bill Eight murray o'clock? at this point was you know yeah twice 40s. her age easily yeah, yeah. Uh, he's doing a version of the milgram experiment actually yeah <laughs> so yeah and shocking the hell out of the guy you know you can yeah. keep the five bucks i've had it i will mister um yeah. i'm sorry jennifer that's the kind of response you're gonna get from from people with your gift do you really think I have it, Doctor Venkman? You're no fluke. It's like, yeah. <laughs> oh, Jesus Christ. Yeah, yeah. You're right. They absolutely don't um, ever uh, chastise him for it. Yeah. They just kind of. They even they share a look, looking to each other. Uh, you know. When, yeah. There he goes again. There he goes again. Yeah. Fuck yeah. It's like. Man. Yeah. So yeah. Yeah. So yeah. That's 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 one that didn't age well. What do you got? No. All right. So. Uh, everybody, go comedy. ahead and unbutton that pocket. Yes, unbutton that pocket. Unzip that fly. Oh, <laughs> let's let's not go that far. Um, I and like if, the idea if, that people are doing that to our our podcast, I think that's wonderful. Good for them. Yeah. Okay. Uh, <laughs> yeah. All right. You know. Cool. But um, if you if you wrote down the Mel Brooks epic, Blazing Saddles. Mm-hmm. Then, then you win the no prize this evening. There you go. There you go. Um, because here's the thing: this movie proves is... what I said at the top. By the way, yeah. Well, yes. At this time it was brilliant, and it does not age well. It does not. It does not age well at all. If if you if you sit down to watch it now, mm-hmm. Gene Wilder's performance is incredible. Yep. Um. I want to say it was Gene Karras playing Mongo. Uh, Alex Karras. Uh, Alex Karras. Yeah, Alex Karras' Mongo is is hysterically funny. Oh yeah. And and Cleavon Little is so like good. he owns this so, movie. So he totally owns this movie. And I think it is important to note that as the audience, if you're paying attention, you know that the target, the person who's being punched at, 
is not the Chinese people or the black folks or the, you know, any of the, any of the, you know, minority groups that are depicted in the film. Right. It's the town of the racist. Yeah. (laughs) Ooh. (laughs) They're all named Johnson for Christ's sake. Yeah. Well, yeah, you're not, yeah, you're not wrong, but, um, (laughs) but yeah. Yeah. You know, you know, the targets of the targets of, of the punchlines are the idiotic racists living in rock Ridge. Right. Yep. And so, it was okay, a peaceful that's, town called Rock Ridge. Yes, a peaceful town called Rock Ridge. Yeah. Um, but did you have to use the N word quite so much, Mel? Like 127 times. Or like, something? like the number of times you like. There are so many bits in this movie that did not have to be unwatchable. Right. Forty years later, if you had just not used that specific word. Like if, if you'd, if you'd found any other way to do it, um, I mean the bit where they're, they're doing reconnaissance on the bad guys by dressing up in KKK robes, mm-hmm. you know, what's your oh, crime? God. Stampeding cattle. Yeah. That's not much of a crime through, through the, the Vatican. Pinky. Pinky sign here. <laughs> like that's, oh my God. Yeah. But, but no, um, you know, and and the sequence where it's it's all the cowboys sitting around a campfire, and it's just one, it's a single take, one continuous oh, series of fart noises. Yeah, like, yeah, I, I get that that's not classy, but but even thinking about it, I'm having a hard time maintaining oh, my composure. And when it's on the screen, I disintegrate, like I fall apart. Oh yeah, but it's just you you can't you you can't even show the tv edited edited version of this film well i mean it wouldn't fill like half an hour it would yeah (laughs) like you could show that and the tv edited version of like basic instinct and you'd still need to fill in like 15 minutes of 15 minutes yeah 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 in a half an hour (laughs) yeah yeah and and the whole and the whole subplot with um Feel so bad. I'm forgetting the actress's name. Lily von Stupp. I can remember the character. Oh, Madeline Kahn. Madeline Kahn. Madeline Kahn's character switching oh. sides, like going from yeah. working for for the bad guy to working for them, all because of of you know spending the night with Sheriff Bart and and you know it's twoo it's twoo it's twoo yeah. it's twoo like <sighs> I mean they, here's the thing. What have I always said about satire? Satire has a shelf life of half of a generation. Yeah. This is remarkably coarse and broad and brilliant satire yeah. from 1974 or 72. Yeah. I forget which, but yeah, I mean, shit, it was I, written, I think you're right with 74. It was yeah. written by Brooks and um, Richard Pryor. Yeah. Like it is, it is written by guys who are taking the piss out of society. Oh yeah. And that's and, and, not why it, it's funny anymore to people. Yeah. Like, and and like talking about Richard Pryor, this is mm. the movie, but the uh, skit that he did, I want to say the only time he was on Saturday Night Live with him and Chevy Chase, where uh, oh, the, the, where they do the word association, yeah, word association, yes, you know, honky, dead yeah. honky, you know, right, you know, um, <laughs> like that is that is house stick like unbelievably cutting satire and it's 
goddamn funny. Yeah. There's no way, no way on earth. Because because even though it is satire, mm-hmm. it is offensive. Yeah. Well, I mean, if it you is, look at nowadays, SNL deeply, you know. If you look at SNL now, they're they're doing remarkably hilarious satire, which in 10 years probably won't age well. I mean, when you have yeah. Black Jeopardy and you have mm-hmm. a MAGA guy on Black Jeopardy and you yeah. start to see the overlap, that's funny. Yeah. Um, you know, and you get uh Keenan Thompson and uh, That's how they get you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh and you get Keenan Thompson as a morning show reporter and uh oh god, I forget the name of all the other people on that uh on that there's like three people. Mm-hmm. There's him, uh a black woman and then two white people and they're basically talking about uh you know, oh this person is on the loose, keep an eye out for him. And uh, the suspect is white. And then he and she like slap hands and they're like, yes. And they're like, what? No, we just were really glad that you're finding the information and and getting that out there. And then it becomes a competition. And it's like, you know, well, okay, fuck this. Okay, let's, you know, a a black person is like, God, okay, okay, you guys get that one. And it becomes a, you know, it's a really funny skit. Yeah. Um, and and of course they turn yeah. some things on their head. They're like, okay, a man died rock climbing, and and uh, the both the white people are like, oh Jesus, uh, and his name is Laquan Ellis, and they're like, what the fuck? Who goes rock? You know, and it's like, <laughs> it's hilarious, right? It's really funny. In ten years, I'm gonna have to be. look that one up. Oh, All it's right. good. In ten years, it won't be. Uh, just like when uh, Michael Che yeah. and um the white guy, I don't know, I don't remember his name from uh the SNL news desk. They write mm. jokes for each other, mm-hmm. and the white guy always writes jokes for Michael Che to make him like seem like just a a really shitty man to women. Um, and then Michael Che always writes jokes to for the white guy to make him seem like a horrible racist. <laughs> and they don't see them until the show goes up. They don't see them until they're on the cards, and they have to read the cards. Oh man, it's such a good conceit. It's so funny. <laughs> And it will not be in a good 10 to 15 years. Yeah. So, yeah. All right. But yeah, this is a, a fantastic uh, satire that. Yeah. Uh, Can't. Yep. It's, yeah. Can so, you yeah. Say what your favorite line is, or is it too, too charged? Uh, <laughs> um, the little bastard shot me in the ass. <laughs> it's a really it's, good one. It's, it's a re- little bastard shot me in the ass. Yeah, it is a good one. Um, and, and the, the whole pantomime bit with Cleavon little holding, holding a gun to his own head. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Just that whole, that whole bit sure. is, is brilliantly done. And it's really clear that that's Richard Pryor's writing like that. Yes. whole uh, Yes. Yeah. That whole segment. Yeah. Um, but yeah, there's okay. just, there's no way. So mine is one of the ones when they're in line and it's, uh, you know, how are we going to get inside? And he sees two guys in the KKK hoods, and he's like, "Yeah, hey boys, look what I got here!" And he pulls Cleavon Little, yeah, and he goes, "Hey, where are the white women at?" And then they go running after them, right? Yeah. And then the best part though is afterwards, you get a screen wipe, and they, oh, that was good. I like that. That was that was <laughs> no, no, beat the, the shit out of them. And yeah, took their robes, kick the shit out of the guys to take their robes. Yeah, and and the way I always heard the line was, "That was pretty. I liked that." Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, and then the other uh. God, there was there was another one that was just you know I love those throwaway line type yeah type jokes um but uh, oh God what was it it was um that'll ah, come to me later yeah uh, yeah such a such a good movie 
um, that I will probably never show my children. Like, yeah, because yeah, it, it's it was good for its time, and it was it was even good for our. Gen- I think it outlasted my general rule. Yeah, um, I think it did, but we've changed probably because society stayed as racist as, as racist as it did for as long as it did like yeah, the slowness like, of of society making progress probably has benignly racist almost compared to what it is now yeah um yeah it's yeah it's much meaner so well i've got one for you okay you ready um yeah this one's from 1999 so this is only oh. a generation and some change old okay uh American Beauty. Oh fuck. Okay. <laughs> yeah, uh, okay. It won the Academy Award for Best Picture that year. Yeah, it did. I actually won tickets to it by impersonating the throne room scene in Return of the Jedi, recast with the unimpressive clergyman as the Emperor, Jimmy Stewart as Luke, Christopher Walken as Darth Vader. Did on like a radio competition. And so I, I won tickets right. to it. Yeah. Um, back when the K Street All Mall right. was the K Street Mall. Um, yeah. Anyway, the movie was actually really well made. Um, the the lighting on it is fantastic. The the mise en scène is terrific. The acting is terrific. Um, Lester Burnham is absolutely trapped in his world, and it's sucking the life and vigor away from him. All the colors that uh, and that's um, Kevin Spacey's character. All the colors that he wears are mm. very bland. They're very uncomfortable. They're very washed out. Um, there's a scene where he's on his monitor at work and the numbers look like bars keeping him in a prison. Uh, his wife, on the other hand, is wearing bland colors, but they're darker in tone. He's more pastel. She's more um, drab. And she's all about her very mm-hmm. vibrant roses. And those are kept in the front of the house and they're kept on the table in a very well manicured spot. Um, and so she cares about that outward appearance of beauty despite her unhappiness the outside mm-hmm. of their house is very vibrant. Um, like I said, she's she's wants to keep the appearance of life, if not the reality of it, in her image. Um, mm-hmm. Their daughter wears rich but very dark colors. Um, and the casting is absolutely perfect. Kevin Spacey's baritone plays so flatly in the beginning, uh, mm-hmm. unless he's faking passion to anyone. Um, Annette Benning's manic shrillness bespeaks someone who is so desperate to keep up appearances that she's a cartoon of what she wants. Um, and Thora Birch's very flat affect is just dripping with bitterness and disaffection. Uh, and then you add to that the mm-hmm. performances of Chris Cooper, Allison Janey, Wes Bentley, and Mina Suwari. It is a phenomenal director, phenomenally directing phenomenal actors through and through. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, and also it's got the guy from Clash of the Titans in it. Um, so I forget his name, of course, the guy who okay. was the real estate king. Um, <clears throat> yeah, the problem is that this is some fucked up shit ultimately. Uh, and in, in many ways, I think it was kind of a funhouse mirror to hold up to America in 1999 in Clinton, mm-hmm. America. Uh, and at the same time, um, it's, it's still, it's, it's one of those, it is not okay on any level. What was done in this movie um, yeah, well, it, you know, it's it's a it's a much more somber and much darker version of what I said about Blazing Saddles. Did you yeah. did you have to do that quite so much? Right. You know. Yeah. Lester yeah. Burnham uh, is trying to reclaim the passion in his life. Right. He begins lusting after his daughter's pretty and super bitchy friend. Mm. They're both underage. Uh, yeah. He doesn't even meet her until after he sees her perform as a cheerleader. 
So you can't even say that it's her bitchiness that attracts him. Um, it's all physical. He is physically attracted to a child, um, which this doesn't. A middle-aged man lusting after a seventeen-year-old was creepy even then. Mm-hmm. And if then you add on to it the reality of the charges that were brought by the British government against Kevin Spacey on behalf of five different plaintiffs, multiple yeah. of whom were seventeen at the time of the alleged crimes. Um, but you know, if you yeah. stick only to the story in the movie, it's still wrong in all of the ways. But knowing what we know about him now, it's so yeah, much worse. It's worse. Um, like the 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 redemption in death that his character kind of has at the end of the film. Yeah, where well, the, the full arc of he because because I mean kind of kind of the yeah yeah and and at the end of the film he is confronted with what he has wanted right for most well, of the film and, and he yeah. turns it down. Well, okay, and I'll yeah, get to why right. he does that too. Yeah, like so. like. Yeah, but but the we we now know in in the real world that that's not you know Kevin Spacey's right. face on that character does not work for that for us anymore. Right, right. It's it's really it, this is one of those art and artist kind of things. You know, separate the art yeah. from the artist kind of thing. I don't think you should have to, um, since the artist is still alive and and re, re, reaping the uh, profits of yeah of you liking the art so you know but uh and the screenwriter wrote mina suvari's character um who i don't remember her name um as presenting slutty not actually slutty she mm. pretends to have had all kinds of sex and she uses it in social situations to like gain clout amongst her peers to have some sort of social capital and we see that um so we're being primed to understand why he's keening that way mm-hmm and we also see the positive impacts that this focus has had on him. And I think this is really where it's it's a problem. Because he wants to fuck his daughter's 17-year-old friend, he starts working out more. And it actually starts improving his life. He starts wearing, uh, he starts tending to himself. He starts working out. He quits his soul-sucking job. He smokes really good pot. He wears brighter colors. He walks taller. He enjoys music more. All because he wants to look good naked on account of his really fucked up crush with his daughter's 17-year-old friend. And then he goes and starts peeping on her in weird ways. He even uses his daughter's own phone to call her. Her name's Angela, if I recall, um, to call her. Um, and then, you know, of course, she answers the phone. He doesn't know what to do, you know, because like he hadn't thought it through, and he hangs up immediately and runs away. Um, and this gets him caught by his daughter, so it further alienates the two of them. Um so like this is all bad, but on balance, it's improving his life. Mm-hmm. He even improves his relationship with his wife with this newfound passion, um, and it's almost rekindles something uh, before she starts to worry about a couch because he recognizes how hot she looks, and mm-hmm. one of the reasons she looks so hot is because she started having an affair, and so yeah. she's feeling well tended to, um. Because their marriage is loveless and and mostly just miserable and sad. So she comes home and like chastises him for being an adolescent. And he's like, Whoa, did you do your hair? You look great. And she's like, Well, you know, I 
uh, there's a lot about me you don't know and he's like reminiscing about the early parts of the relationship and they actually mm -hmm. start to rekindle things and then she's like oh lester you're gonna spill beer on the couch and he's like it's just a fucking couch and mm -hmm. she's like this this couch is and she goes into performance mode of like it's a four thousand dollar from silk from italy and he freaks out on that um and then she leaves and he's very regretful that this failed that they could mm -hmm. have had something again. And then he then, of course, he starts focusing on himself again, which fine, take care of yourself. Um, and then he starts getting lusty for his daughter's friend again. And he starts fantasizing about her, having dreams about her. And we're all subject to that. Um, transferring his wife's roses to her naked underage body in his dreams. Mm -hmm. So I mean, again, incredible visuals in terms of like what the metaphor means and stuff like that. But fuck, dude. And the thing is, Mina Suari was actually an adult at this point. Yeah. So, but she's playing an underage person. So yeah. I don't like that. Like, yeah. the The and, context, the context yeah. of the story is deeply troubling. Yes. You know. Also, Thora Birch was not an adult in this. She was only sixteen. Oh, seriously? Which calls into question that topless scene. Well, her parents had signed off on it because her parents were fucking weird. Um, they're all about art and shit like that and like made decisions on her behalf. Um, art yeah, smart. Uh, it's a minor on screen. Don't yeah. uh, know. Yeah. Sorry. Same I... thing with Zeffirelli's films, by the way. Um, th there's recently been some discussion of Romeo and Juliet, those characters. Those. those oh, characters. yeah. Because they were both underage as well. Yeah. And they were naked. Yeah. Um, so anyway, uh, when it finally comes to it, Mina Suari's character, Angela, uh, has a kind of has kind of written herself into a corner by pretending to want to have sex with Lester to gross out her friend, Lester's daughter, and have some sort of hierarchical power over her. Like, basically, I'm going to fuck your dad. I'm going to do it, you know? And she's like, yeah. you're so gross. Would you stop? And like, no, I'm going to do it. And then, like, she actually goes up to him. She's like, have you been working out? And, mm -hmm. and his daughter just storms off. And he's like, do you like muscles? And then it gets weird, and she walks away. So then she ends up in, a, in, in the situation where the adult in the room is the one who's been lusting after her, and she doesn't know how to back away from what she's claimed. To mm -hmm. be true, which is that she wants him. And she ends up getting topless. And he's sliding off her bottoms. And he's starting to kiss her uh, in all the places. And then she says that she's a virgin. And at that point, he stops because he realizes what a child she is by virtue of the fact that she's a virgin. Not anything else, but her saying that. And it, he even says, he's like, you're kidding. And she's like, no, I, I, I want to do this. I just want you to know why it won't be good. And at that moment, he breaks. And he realizes that, oh, my God, she's a virgin. She's a kid. She's like my daughter. And at mm -hmm. that point, he gives her a hug. And it's a very tender hug and a very like, oh, honey, this is terrible. You need to be comforted hug. But he's also the perpetrator of this, like at the exact yeah. same moment. So it, it's it's just awful. Um, and having come back from the brink brink of being extra creepy and shitty, uh, he finally seems to have balanced things out, right? And and all it really took was a teenage girl exposing herself to him and his thinking of her as his daughter to figure it all out while she's naked. And then he gets to die. Yeah. Now for the extra creepy part. Oh. Oh, we haven't had the extra creepy part yet. No. No. 
In order to prepare for the roles and the scenes that they were in, uh, actors will often rehearse together in different ways and whatnot, right? Now, at that time, Mina Suwari, uh, Suwari, Suwari, uh, was recovering from and going through some pretty dark times. She was in a really bad relationship. She was in her early 20s. She didn't feel herself worth much, and she claimed that the movie was actually a respite from that reality. On set, she was made to feel very important and special. Okay. She All claims right. in her memoir that she identified with the character she played, the one that Lester Burnham's listing after. Quote, I knew how to play that role because I was so schooled in it. Oh, you want me to be sexually attractive? Done, she said. I felt uh, unavailable in a million other ways, but I knew how to play that card. This feels a little bit like the casting director and the director took advantage of someone who was in a bad place emotionally to be able to better direct them. This is this is Tippy Hedren kind of territory in that. Um, yeah, um, yeah uh, I'd, I'd want to know like shit for year for days and days and days <clears throat> and then threw oh, birds yeah. at her. Yeah. So before we make that comparison, mm-hmm. and or before we go that far with that comparison, mm-hmm. I'd want to know how much the casting director, producer, director, everybody like understood about the depth of the situation that she was in. Right. Cause she could have been masking. Right. And yeah. So it could be that they didn't know this when they casted her, but it's really hard to claim fully non full, non willful ignorance. Once the shooting starts though, especially yeah. for this next part oh, in her no. memoir, Savari goes on quote between setups. Kevin took me into a small room with a bed and we laid next to each other, me facing toward him while he held me lightly. I wondered if he had discussed this with Sam Mendes uh, or if it was something he premeditated as a way way to prepare us both for the intimacy we needed to share or if it was a spur-of-the-moment idea. Whatever it was, it worked. Lying there with Kevin was strange and eerie, but also calm and peaceful. And as for his gentle caresses, I was so used to being open and eager for affection that it felt good just to be touched. So, cool. Take a touch-starved, affection-starved actress in her young 20s and have her alone in a private and intimate setting and interaction and then do it for the, quote, intimacy needed for the scenes that they're going to do. Now, I am all for rehearsal. Mm. I absolutely am, really. But Mm. having it in this particular setting with the power dynamics of being what they are for a young and admittedly suffering from abuse actress who is just getting her start in a big way and Kevin Spacey being the experienced actor he is and Sam Mendes being being who he is it's an extra layer of kind of fucked up even if it's mm-hmm. even even if we're just going to completely ignore his sex crimes um it's fucked up considering the subject matter of the movie itself she yeah. continued by saying that she immediately thought Spacey was interested in her stating quote I didn't know how far he was going to take it or how I was going to react if he did go there, but he didn't. We just lay there getting close and comfortable. That's gross. Mm. Like you put her in a situation where she doesn't know how far he's going to take it. And she doesn't, she doesn't feel the agency to be able to leave. Like that's. So Yeah. yeah, that's that movie did not age well. Uh, never mind his sex crimes, just yeah. at the subject matter. So another one I can't show my kids. Yeah. No, that's that's definitely definitely belongs on the list. Yeah. I would I would certainly agree. I so think, 
I mean, unless we have a lighthearted one to end with. Nope. Um, no. Okay. Let's just nope. leave people really uncomfortable. Um, I, I think, yeah. Well, you know, as historians, part of our job is to uh, afflict yeah. the comfortable. So, yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. I've, I've got several others, but uh, I think this is actually a good stopping point time wise. Yeah. So, sorry, audience. Uh, strongly recommend <laughs> you spend your money from the no prize on some ice cream right now. Yeah. Maybe a Brillo pad and uh, take a shower. <laughs> a shower. Oh, I really, you know, here's here's. I'm sorry, everyone. <laughs> kind of what 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 I want to say about it though is mm-hmm. the very fact that these movies can't be watched anymore. I think is a sign that we've moved forward as a society. That is a really good point. I think you know. I mean, it's it's awful to think about. Oh my god, this this horrible, terrible racist sexist manipulative abusive shit mm-hmm. was just well you know i mean that's that's what dudes do you know right um right kind, kind of stuff and the tropes that we used in our in our stories were not enlightened um but we've now lazy well <laughs> reflection yeah yeah and you know, but now we've now we've moved into a place where you and I are even having this conversation. Mm-hmm. Like you Good and point. me, as a couple of middle aged white dudes, are are having this conversation right. about yeah, dude, this shit did not age well. We are like the default that these movies are aimed at. Yeah. And for us to be sitting there going, yeah, this is a this problem. is like, dude, that, that is a good sign. You're right. You you're know? absolutely right. So I think I think. um as as much as you know contemplating the the uh awfulness of uh, american beauty is uncomfortable mm-hmm. i think the very fact that we are uncomfortable thinking about it says that we as a dominant culture have have gotten better we are less shitty than we used to be okay you know and so that's the silver lining to this particular cloud would be my takeaway Okay. Yeah. I'm, I'm cool with that. Okay. I'm cool with that. Uh, what are you going to recommend to people to read? Uh, what am I going to recommend to people to read? I am going to very strongly recommend, uh, that people go out and find, um, the once in future King, uh, because, uh, just before recording, uh, my wife and I were watching, uh, the sword in the stone with uh, our little boy and that is a particular telling of the legend of king arthur that i think is resonant and meaningful in a modern setting Mm -hmm. so i'm gonna go with that i like it how about you uh i'm gonna recommend foley is good and the real world is faker than wrestling by mick foley it was a new york times bestseller i think it's his second or third memoir um, it's relentlessly sweet and decent. Okay. I mean, here you got a guy who made his career being set on fire, made bloody, thrown off of things, thrown through sticking things, his, sticking his tongue through a hole in his lip. Right. Yeah. That was made seconds earlier, you know, yeah. all these things, making people afraid that he was going to hurt a super heroic undertaker character. Um, and he <laughs> writes with such a sweetness and such a god it's it's not quite self-aware but like self-possessed okay um and just an 
honest integrity. And, and that is a good palate cleanser for, for what we did to you today. Um, okay. So I, I recommend like that. And I guarantee you, we're going to have other episodes of this topic. Well, because uh, yeah, it's it's the gift that keeps on giving, really. Yeah. You know, I mean, you know that I'm going to bring up Forrest Gump at some point. Oh, if you don't, I'll be I'll be pissed because <laughs> yeah. um. So yeah, there's 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 all kinds of good stuff. Um, but anyway, uh, yeah, that's that's what I'm going to recommend. Um, Foley is good. All right, cool. Sounds where can, good. Where can folks find you? Um, I can be found on TikTok as Mr. Underscore Blaylock. Um, and I can be found as Catfetcher, pardon me, on Twitter uh, for as long as that site uh, manages to not, in you know, combust into a ball of purple flame. Um, and then we collectively, of course, can be found um, on at our website at www.geekhistorytime.com. Uh, you can also find us on Twitter as uh, Geek History Time. And um, you have already found us either at our website or on one of the streaming services uh, where you can find the podcast. Wherever you found us, please take a moment to uh, subscribe and give us the five-star review that you know we've earned. Uh, where can you be found, sir? Uh, you know what? You can find me. Let's see. By the time this airs. March 3rd, we're going to be at Luna's at 8 p.m. Uh, please have proof of vax, bring $10 for capital punishment. Um, and if you miss the March 3rd show, then go to the April 7th show, which is going to be back at Henry's. So if you came to the first Henry show, come back for the second Henry's show. Also in Sacramento, bring $10, proof of vaccination, wear a freaking mask, um, and uh, buy some food. Um, but, uh, we've got some really killer lineups, uh, set up for you, uh, for that. So yeah, capital punishment, both on March 3rd and April 7th. And if for some reason you've decided to, uh, start listening to this after April 7th, uh, then May 5th, we're going to be back at Luna's. So, all right. uh, Very but cool. yeah, that, that pretty much will take care of it. So, uh, well, for, uh, a geek history of time, I'm Damien Harmony. And I'm Ed Blaylock. And until next time, keep rolling twenties.